This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Managing innovation, I've come to believe, is one of our biggest challenges and at the same time, one of our greatest opportunities. Data has always been the crux of where we make decisions, but now data comes to us so fast that it's a challenge just to absorb what is best and what is needed for decision making. Listen to this. Jerry, how long did it take for uh, the telephone to reach 50 million users. I have no idea. 75 years. The radio, 38 years. Television, just 13 years. We're talking about reaching 50 million users. For the World Wide Web, four years. For Facebook, three and a half. For the iPad and the iPod and remember all that, just three years. AOL, 2.5 years. Remember that? I do. An app called Draw Something, it took 50 days. And for Angry Birds app, you know how many days it took to reach 50 million users? Just 35 days. Data comes to us at an extraordinary pace, and it's helping us make changes, cutting-edge data. Innovation is what Dr. Dawn Opal is all about. Yet she is pragmatically rooted in discovering how all of this data can help us meet the needs of our community and especially our hungry neighbors. It's the second time around for Dawn with us here on Food First Michigan, and she joins Jerry Brisson and me after this short break. We're back here on Food First Michigan, Jerry Brisson, and as promised, our guests from Michigan State University, our friend and colleague, Dr. Dawn Opal. Dawn, thanks for being back here. Thanks for coming back to the show. Of course. I wouldn't miss another opportunity. So lots of great things. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I can see well, that. Yeah, well, I'm just, you know, it's so fun. She walks in the door and we we just start having fun. Uh, but that's what happens when dedicated, smart people just start talking about their life. It is so good to have you today. And we're really, really looking forward to sharing all the things that you've been doing with our listening audience. It's, it's going to be great. So I think we should start right here at food as a nexus and you know and I when I when I think about your work and how important it is for the future of uh, the people that we all serve uh, I think of the word integration and so um, I don't know if there's a uh, you know, uh, if you need another PhD, Jerry and I can give you one. Uh, the 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 PhD of integration because you, that's how you really see the community getting stronger and people getting stronger. Absolutely. So a lot of what I do is bringing people together from and having conversations that normally wouldn't happen across the silos of healthcare, social services, government, the nonprofit sector, academics. Um, but we really do get stronger. And 
and make more progress if we work together to move forward. And a lot of that is, uh, you know, building the kind of rapport and relationships that um, really sustain projects beyond just, you know, uh, a three-month or three-year grant or, a, you know, a, a single project, but really starting to think about making change uh, culturally uh, that can last for a long time and make a real difference for people. So I think last time we talked about an app, wasn't it an app you were working on or something that we were you were trying to see if you had everybody using kind of the same tool that it would help in some of that? I mean, yes, and I have good news to re- to report on that front. I've had several meetings. Um, it's not just me that's interested in trying to bring people together on one platform uh, to help folks who may have multiple complex needs across uh, these silos. So um, I've been working with healthcare for some time um, and trying to think about how uh, providers and uh, payers can better plug in to uh, community-based organizations and community supports and vice versa. How community-based organizations can tap into healthcare, And so um, what I'm really excited about is that the Michigan Health and Hospital Association and the Department of Health and Human Services in Michigan is are also very interested in this work. And so we've uh, started to partner and have had several meetings uh, to look at ways that we might be able to take an application that allows uh, different entry points. We call it no wrong door that, you know, that if you if you meet with oh. a professional in any sector, you should be able to find assistance in any other sector. That's what we're hoping for. Um, And so there's a lot of excitement around that. And I think that in the next uh, couple of years, we're going to be piloting the same application that I was using in mid-Michigan across the state in much the same way that we have My Bridges to apply for uh, entitlement programs uh, like SNAP and Medicaid. Uh, So the idea is that that's not the end. It's not just going to stop with what the government can provide, but also be thinking about ways to better leverage other community supports and um, and the healthcare system to provide better uh, support for people. And hopefully that will alleviate some of the burden on any one sector. The idea is that it lifts, sort of rising tide lifts all boats. And when you think about time is money, right? When you think about time is money, somebody that needs assistance is often at a place where what they have the least of is time. Right. And yet, Every time they go try to get help to get past this this bump in the road, they spend another hour talking to someone about their income and talking to someone about how many kids they have and bringing proof of all those things. And so we see this in our pantry network. And part of the reason we're committed to technology as is as a really important solution is because it's so valuable to people. Their time is so valuable to them that. Why should they have to answer those questions 25 times if if they can answer them once and get all the help they need from wherever they need it from? It's hugely important. Absolutely. And I would say that um, if anyone who's ever been to a new healthcare provider has had to fill out 15 forms before they go in, now imagine <laughs> compounding that by every possible program and service that every single one has a different set of forms and a different system. And that's a large part of my research is to figure out how we can cut down on that. And also that saves time and money too. And it saves yeah. money for every uh, organization that has to do that data management and intake. So the hope is that we can make it easy 
easier for people who need services to get them more quickly and to hopefully get healthier um, faster. So that's what we're trying to do. So if I would just say, Dawn, that you know, if you could just work on your passion and enthusiasm <laughs> a little bit. Um, no, I, you know, if I could clone you, I would like make a thousand of you because I think you make this world, you're going to make this world so much better for people who struggle with life. And I, I'm sitting over here watching you talk about this and the passion that you have. And this is from other conversations we've had and in a strange matter, coffee shops, and um, and I, I appreciate you very, very much. I mean... Well, this is why I come back to the show. <laughs> you can't get this kind of positive reinforcement just everywhere. So. Right, right. Well, I, you know, I mean, and, and for... You know, we have a lot of folks, and we maybe said this in another show or two, that we have a lot of researchers who come to the Food Bank Network and want to do research. We have very few researchers who come that are so pragmatic. Like, this has got to help people. This has got to make a difference in people. And everybody's got good hearts and good intentions, but you really bring that home. And that's why we love working with you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that's what makes it uh, worthwhile for me to be involved with such wonderful partners like, like you all and who are working towards the same goals that I am. So that's, that's sort of what it's all about. So we want to we extend this conversation. And I'm going to have to ask you guys both, both of you, uh, when you talk about this integration model that we're, we're learning, no, no, no wrong door, for example, I'm going to have to ask you about the administration's policy on broad-based categorical uh, eligibility and how that kind of seems to be moving in the opposite direction of the no wrong door um, opportunity. So just be prepared for that in the next segment. He's Jerry Brisson, Dr. Don Opal. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we'll be back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio, and our guest, Dr. Don Opal from Michigan State University, researcher, professor, um, integration strategist. I mean, you're doing so much, and... Um, so I, I, I left that first segment with you talking about broad-based categorical eligibility and how that kind of seems to be going in the opposite direction of the no wrong door opportunity that you talked about. So just touch on that, but then we'll, I just want to get your perspective. Jerry and I have covered it on the show, but I'd love to just have you talk about that for a minute or two. Sure. So one of the things that I've seen uh, in my research has been listening to people's stories and and trying to understand why they seek certain kinds of services or why they wouldn't seek other kinds of services that might uh, improve their health and well-being. And some of that is linked to uh, a fear of what um, of what 
that intake information may be used for and if it's used for other kinds of things other than to receive food or to receive care in some way. And so some of these, um, some of as a result, it kind of moves where certain people will go to receive services and in ways that you that you might not always expect. And in sometimes that really does mean that um, that that a person wouldn't seek, say, a, a free service in their community that may be readily available, but will go somewhere else and um, or take, you know, for take a different kind of service that may cost a lot more money or may um, be, you know, a, ver- a huge inconvenience to them or their family cause detriment to, you know, to lots of folks. And so I can kind of tell a few different kinds of stories that way. But it's a it's a real balancing act, the sort of um, the what data do we need to collect in order to provide services for people and what is that purpose? And I think for what I've learned over time is that we need to really, as professionals in any sector, we need to really think about what it is that we're collecting that data for. Is it a moral purpose? Is it a, you know, if so, we need to really interrogate that because that shouldn't be, you know, the data that's collected should be for a pragmatic purpose that's linked to supply and demand of resources. Um, And that's, you know, often not the case. Yeah, I want to give an example just to try to really bring this home. On average, uh, the people who are getting services from our pantry networks are carrying $4,000 in debt. And they don't have the ability to pay it back. And so they're managing trade-offs every month. Am I going to pay my utility bill? Am I going to pay my water bill? Am I going to pay my rent? Am I going to buy food? Am I going to pay for medicine? This is just a reality in people's life. So one of the things that people are desperately afraid of is having all of that catch up to them at once. So when when you're giving information, personal information about income and, and, and payments that you have to make, people start to worry about, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but how is that information going to be used? And is that going to come back and hurt me because I'm struggling to pay off the debt that I have and stay on top of all my bills? So that's just a real situation. It's, it's not that people don't want to do it, but it's obviously a struggle and a challenge, and it's taking them time to figure it out. And so they can be very careful about who they want to give what information to. So hopefully that helps put a little perspective on the reasons why people are afraid. It's not because they have some terrible thing to hide. It's because they're managing some pretty difficult life circumstances and they don't want to get they don't want to have it all catch up to them at once, which would obviously be very overwhelming. I agree with you completely. And I would say that there are lots of reasons that in, are in no way bad reasons. And in fact, some of them um, some of them relate to hardship and tragedy. I've seen another one over being asked about the size of your household. And I, you know, I have heard lots of stories where, let's say, someone loses their job and their the, the grandkids come to live with their grandma. And, you know, they're trying to figure out, like, they don't really know know at any given month, you know, sort of where, you know, families that are on the brink of homelessness are often really trying to balance a lot of different, you know, really living day to day. And so when they give that those data points upon intake, they're really concerned that those might be used in ways that might affect, you know, one bill might affect another bill. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like a domino effect. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to we're trying to lift people up. And often in the service of doing that, you know, it can cause 
cause other kinds of concerns and worries for them that might cause them not to seek food assistance. So getting back to broad-based categorical eligibility and and applying that to these situations, what broad-based categorical eligibility does is say if you qualify for this program through this uh, process, right, Mm -hmm. it's a door, it's a right door, right, we're going to qualify you for these other things as well. And and so it makes it easier, it's less administrative work, but there have been instances where uh, there's a feeling that people who wouldn't otherwise qualify are getting something they are not eligible to get. And that's the reason why the administration's taking a look at it to say, maybe we shouldn't do it this way, maybe we should ask everybody everything all the time. And there's a cost to that, right? It's not free to do that. In addition to the cost of just asking questions for everything all the time. So in other words, instead of giving people the service that they need, you're you're spending money on administration, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's right. a little upside down from that perspective. But it also just makes it harder for people to get the things they need. And so, you know, we just have to be careful about these decisions, even if they're rightly focused from a let's do the right thing perspective. The right thing isn't just about administrative dollars, right? It's about serving people that need help so they don't need help anymore. So I think no wrong door is a little bit, you know, in the face of that considered policy change. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's difficult to hold two values in the same hand, right? So is it a fiscal responsibility thing, or are we complaining that this program costs too much or whatever that might be from their perspective, from that perspective, I should say, or is it, do we really want to come alongside of people who are doing the best they can with what they have? And, you know, I mean, we've got 4.5% unemployment in the state of Michigan, And we know that 47% of the people who come to our network have someone in their household that is employed. And we know that 24% are children and 19% are senior citizens. And what is it, 6% are homeless? homeless. So that's 97% right there. So you got a ton of people doing the right things the right way, and they just can't get ahead. They got more month than they do money. Absolutely, yes. So how does no wrong door walk into their life. Well, I think that it's important, first of all, to tell these stories. So I appreciate Jerry um, giving some really concrete um, examples so that people can see. And and you too, Phil, because when you really start to look at what it looks like, what um, employment, for instance, like we have, a, we have a vision in our head sometimes of what employment is, right. and it doesn't look the same for everyone. Um, so I think it's telling the stories of what it means to, um, you know, to just get by and have... Um, cost of living continue to, you know, exponentially increase. Those are the types of things that when you go to, say, for instance, your once a year uh, paid for general practitioner, you know, family medicine visit, and that's covered under every health care plan and every um, entitlement plan. And so the idea is everyone should go to their yearly visit. Well, the kinds of things that I have seen happen at that yearly visit are often that, you know, that these types of questions about um, access to healthy food and water and shelter and behavioral health and, um, you know, all of these things come to light. And the idea is how do you get connected to 
all of those things when you're working four jobs, when you've got, you know, what, right. these sorts of stories, they just compound and you say, there's no way that this person is going to take four pamphlets and somehow, you know, make all these calls and fill out all these forms and see if they're eligible and find the location in their county and all of this kind of stuff. So this is what No Wrong Door is aiming at, is to say, once you've made it to your family doctor, you should be able to make it to the other services that you need to be healthy. And those services come in, and we like to term wraparound services, but I like the idea of those services coming to that person and wrapping themselves around them and coming alongside of them so that they've got the leverages they need in order to strive towards self-sufficiency. Absolutely. And I would say that it puts more of the onus on the professional rather than the vulnerable person to make that wraparound happen. And that's something that I believe strongly in, that we have capacity as professionals to do more. Um, and it's it's a part of our job if we see health and wellness as more than treating disease. If we see it as more holistically, then that becomes a part of what we do as professionals. Yeah, I'll tell you another thing I want to cover at some point is having people be able to drop in when they can make it rather than making it about when the professional has time. And I know that's tough, but we really have to make systems more accessible to people based on when they can make it. Okay, we're, we'll pick it up, but you gotta, you got to give me a chance to um, earn some money here, make some money. So we're going to take a quick break. She's Dr. Dawn Opal. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're back in just a moment. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back here on Food First, Michigan. Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Brisson, our guest, Dr. Dawn Opal, Michigan State University. And uh, But you have been making some visits, you know, to the uh, other side as well. Go Blue, University of Michigan. You've been working over there a little bit, too. It's true, and they're proud of me. So uh, I worked this year at the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan as their inaugural Michigan State University faculty fellow. And they're proud of me now. Oh, like, they, they, like It was kind of great because uh, I got took a lot of ribbing for like the first three months that I was there. But then I think Michigan State beat them in a, in a game, I think a basketball game this past spring. So I uh, got I had a really amazing glory day that day. But... Oh. I will say that uh, it was a wonderful experience to learn more about health policy and to think about how the uh, kinds of questions that I'm asking rub up against um, Michigan policy. Uh, and we want to think about how we can uh, how we can have uptake of our research to policy outcomes and work with the legislature to think about what opportunities we may be missing. Um, and so I had a lot of opportunity to talk to lots of legislators and their staffers. And, be, and become friends with them on both sides of the aisle, which was wonderful, and also to go to D.C. and, um, and talk to uh, folks on the Hill uh, about the kinds of issues that we talk about here on the show. So, uh, so I'm really indebted to the University of Michigan and also to uh, my dean at Michigan State University for making that possible. You know who you don't want to be, Jerry? <laughs> I, I have a little list. <laughs> I'll tell you who you don't want to be. You don't want to be the person that follows her at that fellowship at yeah, University of Michigan. Right. You, don't exactly not want, right. you do not want to be that. That should Aww. move to the top of your list. <laughs> so, 
All right, so lots to cover here in this segment, uh, incentivizing um, payers and the whole system to look at um, food as medicine. Um, so I'm going to th- throw that out to you two and, and, and just see what happens here, because I, I think that's a, no pun intended, but that's a lot of red meat in that topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the end of the last segment, we, we started talking a little bit about drop-in versus appointment-based changes. And and that's something we're looking really carefully at in our whole network of providing food, having more opportunities for people to drop in when it's convenient for them. Um, and we believe that that's necessary in order to accomplish some of the integration that you're talking about. You you can't have people have to make a thousand appointments to get everything they need. It's got to be easier for the consumer to get what they want. And so, of course, No Wrong Door is about making it easier for the consumer. And and some of these other policy changes are about making it easier for the consumer. So, you know, I just want to say I do think it's really, really necessary to meet people where they are. And we've said this before. It's not where you wish people were, but actually where they are, mm-hmm. where you're going to meet them and get the most done. So kind of teasing that up a little bit and throwing it to you, Don, to say what other kinds of things are you working on out there in, in terms of this integration of service and policy changes that would make a difference? Sure. So one of the things that I was thinking about while you're talking is that we know that certain kinds of chronic illness affects millions and millions of people and that, that really the kinds of behavioral changes and the kinds of dietary changes, the kinds of uh, lifestyle changes that are required are very similar for everyone. So why would we need individual appointments uh, to talk about the same kind? I mean, there are probably general practitioners that um, say 10 times a day, like you need to lose 20 pounds and this is, you know, the diet that you should be on. And, you know, so for the same kinds of heart, uh, heart disease, cholesterol, obesity, all of these issues, what we think and we know there is lots of evidence that is that proves that it's quite successful to have group visits, to have um, different kinds of appointments where um, where you can drop in, where um, you can talk with a community about the same kinds of issues that we face and build support systems oh. for one another um, that may not exist in an individual doctor-patient relationship. Because you, what we know is that being told uh, that you need to eat better and lose weight is not a very successful learning strategy. You don't learn to, you don't change. Now, she was you, looking right at me, Dr. Phelan, <laughs> and for good reason, I'm afraid. Right. But, but what if, you know, what if when you went for that same appointment, they, they moved you to another room where there were 20 people talking about barriers to improvement, and there, was, there were representatives there from nutrition, from, you know, from whole food providers, from food pantries that provide fresh food? What if all of that was there, too, to have support and to have encouragement to make changes? And I think that's what we know, that we need more one-stop shop, where, um, those, where it isn't just, oh, we'll refer you to a specialist or a nutritionist to make up an appointment in another three months, but really to say, no, let's tackle this here. Uh, let's make this a part of what it means to receive care. And I think that's um, for lots of conditions that many, many, many people face. Uh, it's just not cost effective to have people come in for a 15-minute doctor's appointment to talk about the same thing over and over and over and over again. And we know that with a lot of chronic illness that that's the case, that instead we need to change culture. We need to make it easier to get healthier. So how do we do that? What 
what are you know what are the barriers that are keeping people from achieving better health outcomes and how do we meet them where they are and i want to say when we talk about food insecurity being a solvable problem these are the ideas that inspire us to believe it. You know, there's a lot of changes mm. we can make that can help people and help systems and drive costs down. It's not just about needing more, needing more, needing more, needing more. It's about taking what we know and using it better so that we can drive cost out and impact in. And I'm, it's just exciting to, to have these conversations with people who are working hard on this on all the levels that you're working on it because that is what's going to make us actually solve these problems. I agree with you completely. So a lot of times people talk to me about the cost of certain kinds of programs and I and what is very uh, easy to do is to also look at what the cost of a heart attack is. Um, not And not just from the healthcare perspective, from the employment perspective, um, from the you know, from the loss of support for other family members, like the, the costs are astronomical. So why do we wait until that moment to improve the health and wellness of people? A community-based food program is so much less expensive. So, you know, these are the types of things that um, that when people make economic arguments, um, we know that it's not always an economic argument, that we're making lots of different kinds of arguments. And so we have to kind of parse them out and say, okay, what is this really about? What do we really want the world to look like and people to look like in it? And I think that as we reach a sort of, you know, we are, I think, in a sort of healthcare crisis now for folks that, that you know, ha- that are food secure as well as insecure in the in the sense of the types of food we have access to readily, um, this is a gr- this is this is a growing concern and something that we really have to tackle these arguments to make change for the better. It does come around back mm. to the importance of capturing the information and being able to prove these concepts over time, right? So all this comes right back around to what we started talking about, which is when we capture the information and integrate services and learn who's helped and how much they're helped and how much it saves and how much it changes people's lives for the better, we're going to be able to have stronger and stronger and stronger arguments to make. And all that builds on each other. You know, I don't know if you've ever had problem managing debt in your life. We we have had some over over years and so we read the book that talked about you have to take one thing you pay that off then you take all that money that you have from paying that off and you pay off the next thing and you take all that money and you pay off the next thing and then pretty soon you're debt free which we have managed to do now so many problems can be managed in the same way. You don't have to solve it all at once, but you do have to make a commitment to the process, right? So when we look at the integration between healthcare and other services, we know it's complex. We know it's going to take time. But when you take one thing and you take the savings from that one thing and you apply it to the next thing, all of a sudden you do find that without needing more money, you're solving the problem. Hence, food first. Right? Right. Right. Food first. It makes sense. Just fix it. And uh, somebody on this show says a lot. I wrote it down. Food is cheaper than money. <laughs> well, right. You know, it is so makes so much sense to solve this problem on the front end rather than deal with the consequences of it on the back end. So before you go and we close this segment and the show, um, we're going to be together in Philadelphia at a conference and so I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about that. Sure. So I'm very excited. Uh, 
to be uh, presenting with Phil uh, on a, a roundtable uh, to talk to academics as well as advocates in a variety of different sectors on uh, how to translate research for policy outcomes and for advocacy. So part of what we're going to talk about is our own relationship and how to build uh, relationships across sectors to make change and the ways that we use, say, the evidence that I collect in my research for the kinds of arguments that you make to different stakeholders and different audiences in mm. your jobs, in your mm -hmm. multiple uh, roles, uh, and to tell some stories of um, of how that's worked across a number of different um, areas of research. So we'll be joined by um, some collaborators that have worked in environmental science and other areas. Um, so it should be a really interesting discussion of, um, of food and agriculture and citizen science and lots of different things and how we've, uh, and how the academy and the nonprofit sectors can work together to make change for people. So my goal when I'm a part of that panel is, um, you know, is, you know, people might look at me on that panel and go, wow, he, you know, he's pretty smart, you know, and then if I open my mouth, I'll probably prove him wrong. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to do a lot of nodding <laughs> no, and agreeing with Dawn, you know, and so yeah, it, that, so I'm honored. I'm happy to be a part of that. And uh, thank you for asking me to do that. And it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be wonderful. I'm very excited to have you there. And you know, this show in and of itself is a big, I think, success story of how you bring together people from all different sectors in Michigan that are working on food uh, to to, uh, to really educate and inform the public, which is a wonderful advocacy project in and of itself. So I hope you talk about that. We are. Well, we wanted to, <laughs> we wanted to change the conversation about food insecurity, and now we we're our goal is to create a movement to 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 bring about some of the changes that you talked about, particularly food as medicine. How do we incentivize healthcare and the government policies and all of that that goes in together to say. This is the best thing for the community. It's the best thing for people. She's Dr. Dawn Opal. She is from Michigan State University. She's our friend, colleague, researcher, extraordinaire. And uh, Dawn, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have you back for sure. Jerry Brisson and I will be back in just a moment. We'll wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. back everybody thanks for listening dr dawn opal from michigan state university and um you know i university of michigan bother borrowed her for a bit this year and but what an incredible researcher jerry yeah phenomenal energy too and uh, it's always a pleasure to to work with dawn you know um when you're face to face with these problems it it can be easy to feel discouraged but man dawn just keeps you going she she sees everything as an opportunity to improve, and uh, and she's not afraid to take that everywhere she goes. So uh, what a great privilege it is to work with her on these issues of integrating our services and making life easier for the people we're all serving and, and trying to help them really find success. Um, and so, I, as you said in the monologue, very pragmatic application of these uh, pieces of work that she's doing and all aimed at, you know, how do we take what we're already doing 
and make it work better so that we can spend less time and money on things that are just duplicative. Right. Uh, and I think that it is important. And, and I talked about food banks uh, looking at how to do that as well. We know that still for us, word of mouth is the number one way people find out how to get help. Right. Word Right. Of mouth, and and you know I don't know how long that would take to reach fifty million users, but a pretty darn long time. Well, yeah, it wouldn't be Angry Birds fast. Yeah, it? right. That's exactly right. So you know, uh, making technology work for people when they are someplace where they're giving us information, using it across our whole network so that if a person has already communicated with us and we know who they are, we can make life easier and simpler for them. Taking that across healthcare and all the other social Education. services, no question about it, is a it's a very important part of really solving this problem. But I get excited because that's why I believe the problem can be solved. I know right. we said it before, but it's worth saying again. The opportunities are what make it solvable. Right. And I just have a hundred things going on in my head right now about it'd work for this, it'd work for this, it'd work for this, it'd work for this. I mean, great energy, great opportunity. I'm I'm certainly leaving the show today going, there's a reason to go back to the office. Right, because it can happen. Well, you think about Dawn and you think about the data. And again, she is so pragmatic. Um you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm encouraged. I'm like you because super smart person. Uh, and there's a team of those. There's a bunch of people out there and they're, they're coming alongside of us. We're coming alongside of them and we're, it, it, it really encourages me. It's, I'll steal your word. I, I, I think it's solvable. Yep. I think it is. Time for a little food for thought, and we're talking about data and how fast it comes to us and some of the great data points from Dr. Dawn Opal today. Here's a couple of things about data. It's been said, in God we trust, all others bring data. And that's the honest truth. And data is super important to our work. But there also is a need to torture the data. Because if you torture it long enough, if you examine it long enough, it'll confess to almost anything. So you've got to make sure that your data is accurate. And that's what we're trying to do at the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our network as we're working to solve food insecurity across Michigan. Thanks for listening to us today. And until next week, remember, it's Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.